You are listening to an episode of Red Hill Stories, discussions about faith, life, and Jesus. If you'd like to catch up on our other episodes, you can go to redhillschurch.com stories, or you can check us out on iTunes and on Spotify. Now, on to the next episode. Welcome to another episode of Red Hill Stories. I'm April Walker, and I'll be your host today. Please join me in welcoming Lyle Walker. Hello. Hello. This is interesting. Normally, I'm the one doing the interviewing. Ha-ha. Ha-ha. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, uh, if you're wondering why April, my lovely wife, is interviewing me today. Well, I mean, I guess it would have been in- Really boring if I just talked the entire time. Yeah, nobody wants to listen to that. No. Just kidding. No. <laughs> no, it's like we're sitting here in quarantine. We're in, what, month two of this. I'm not going to say ridiculousness, but it's craziness, right? We've been in our house a long time. <laughs> and then, so I, I was supposed to interview another member of the church. Um, and because of the social distancing stuff and... Just kind of trying to avoid the the over the phone interviews, we decided that well, what better time, I guess, to do my story? I don't know. It just seemed, I don't know. It just seemed like the right time to do it. Just you know, out of well, why not? Yeah, why not? Right? Why not? Yeah, why not? You know, gotta keep the thing going. Okay, Lyle. So you always ask people to share something like a little thing to get people to help you help know know them better so today how about you share something about yourself but let's add uh share something a little embarrassing oh embarrassing yeah okay well um even though i'm a a, i'm not a huge person i'm not like some gargantuan person but i I range six two two sixty um i'm afraid of roaches like the big ones, not those like little like the, what they call the German roaches. I don't. They're all. I don't know. Oh, let's just put it this way. I, I have like this. It's like a spidey sense, but with roaches. Like if we're in bed, right, and I can see like it's pitch dark, I can sense them in the room and I can point them out. Like I know they're. I can feel them because we're ultimate in- in- enemies. Yeah, I, I have a fear of roaches. I don't like them. I think they're the grossest thing ever created. I don't know. Anything that can withstand an atomic bomb attack should be somehow eradicated from this planet, I think. I don't know. So what do you do when uh, you see a roach? Whoa, hey, hey, let's not get personal here. This isn't. <laughs> um, one of two things happen. If I have a can of Raid with me, I get a, about a half a can of Raid per roach is, is what I would say is, is that or burning down the house, whichever one comes first. No, um... There, there have been moments of uh, noises made. <laughs> um, I'm not going to say screams, but um, I've got I've manned up a little bit since we've had kids. Um, you know, I can't I can't uh, show t- that side of me to uh, my kids yet. So, uh, but they know, they know, they they know, they know the drill. They know if they see a roach to call mommy. Right, mom's yeah, but if it's a spider or a snake or a lizard or something of that nature. That'll take care of it, but the um, I draw the line at uh, at at big those giant, and it doesn't help. 
that we live under Florida. Well, yeah. <laughs> Florida. Welcome to Florida. Where everything's trying to kill you. And where roaches abound. Yes. Uh, we live under a giant 200-year-old oak tree um, that uh, breeds these things um, all year round. So we have a, we have a um, very hefty um, pest control service that um, we pay. They do know us by name. They do. They now, do I don't call name. them when I have... Uh, you know, if I see a roach and I'm by myself, one of two things is going to happen. I'm going to try to kill it, or I'm just going to act like it isn't, it's not there. People will notice that come to visit. We do have a cat now. Yes. So. She does, and she helps a lot. So She helps. That's that's probably one of the most embarrassing things about me. I'm glad that now the tens of people who listen to this podcast <laughs> <laughs> now know that story about me. I appreciate that. Uh, Thanks, babe. No problem. I'm here to help. Mm-hmm. So here at Red Hill Stories, we, have an, we put in effort to – to add another layer of not only communication, but getting um, things that you otherwise wouldn't talk about kind of out. There's lots of um, small conversations that happen on a Sunday morning or, you know, a little more intimacy in maybe like a community group or a men's group or women's group. But at Red Hill Stories, this is an effort to talk about your life maybe before Hmm. your current situation or where you are now, not only in life, but also in your spiritual walk. Mm -hmm. So, Lyle, why don't you give us a little bit of your story? My story. So, I will say, um, I wasn't nervous until you said that. <laughs> yeah, I, my story is interesting, like most people's, right? <laughs> um, if I were to go back and I were to define my life, right, just, you know, I'm 38 years old and going all the way back to my earliest memories, I, I would just say, God be the glory. You know, uh, lots of high points, lots of good things that's happened in my life. I look back and just lots of joy and happiness, but there are, um, unfortunately more than I probably would like or wish. Um, there were a lot of low points. Um, early on, I grew up in a very loving family. Um, we, you know, didn't grow up in church. I would say more like grew up around church. I mean, there's a long history of, in my family, background of pastors and evangelists and things of that nature and and musicians and so we always were around church but I didn't grow up in the the typical sense where every week you know go to the same church and have that community and and that aspect Um, early on moved a lot I grew up in Mobile Alabama um, and made my way through multiple (laughs) southern states Um, but we moved a lot, like once a year, sometimes and at some points, multiple times in the same year. And so not having that consistent just just place to be, and whether it's in school or fan, uh, church, I, just, I would say a good way to describe it would be consistent inconsistencies, you know? And not being able to have those roots and develop those friendships at a very young age um, just really impacted me for, for a great um, number of years. Um, and the reason why we didn't have a consistent church and my parents, um, had some hurt, some things happened in a, in a church we went to in Mobile. And I think that affected their ability to find, you know, that right church. I mean, they went through a lot there. And so we tried this church for a little while and then we bounced to another church or we'd go to a home church and, um, we wouldn't go to church for long stretches. I mean, we didn't go to a consistent, I, I wouldn't say I had a church, Outside of this one tiny little stint, maybe I don't even know how long we were there, this Baptist church in in, um, Nashville, I would say um, Agape Life Fellowship (laughs) when I was 17 years old, you know, 
The longest stint I stayed at one school was three years, and that didn't start until I was in fifth grade. I went to Noblewood Christian School in Mobile for three years, moved to Nashville. We were there for three years, and I went to this, this Christian school up there for three years, and then we moved to Tallahassee, and I finished up high school um, at Lincoln for two years. And so. And why did you guys move so much? I mean, my parents probably have a better answer for that. I mean, I know they, you know, we would move into a place, we, they would buy it, and there would be an opportunity down the road, and some other, some other things happened. But um, I know my dad moved us from Mobile to Nashville because he got a promotion. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes you move your family not because you necessarily want to. And that was very impactful for me. Probably at a young, early stage, moving from Mobile to Nashville was like, like the worst thing looking back that it had happened to me. I loved being from Alabama. I mean, if you know me, I'm a huge Alabama fan. Um, and so, so having that as part of my identity was huge. And I was starting to, at that point, sixth, seventh grade, I was starting to get into my own um, in sports. And I was part of this little, little school. And I was you know, going to go to this, I think, the local high school, Davidson. And I was kind of sprouting up at that point. And um, I was becoming a leader in that school. And I was really just starting to take off a little bit. And then we moved to Nashville. And that school, those three years I spent at Nashville Christian School, did a doozy on me. Did just an, I mean, I'm, st- I, I would like to say that at 38, I've recovered from what happened to me in ninth, 10th and eighth, ninth and 10th grade, but there is lasting psychological damage that was done to me during those years. And so what ended up happening is when I was like 10 or 11 years old, I kind of blew up a little bit. Like, you know, like I went from like this, like skinny little kid to like, as my grandmother would tell me, um, I went to, I was husky size, you know? Um, I sprouted up, but then I went wide. I went high, then, you know, wide. And so starting probably around fourth or fifth grade, I started getting made fun of because of my weight. And that really blew my self-esteem out the water. I I didn't have a lot of self-esteem. I didn't know who I was. didn't have a lot of confidence, um, whether it was in my, my you know, my, 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 how I viewed myself or really how other people viewed me. I mean, my nickname in high school, in Nashville Christian School, was Fat Lyle. And so that sound, you would think by having that nickname, you're like, how, how big were you? <laughs> I was about six foot, six two, probably. I'm six two now in eighth, ninth grade. And I was about uh, 220 pounds. That's not fat. I was chubby. I mean, I was, you know, I had baby fat on me, but I was not fat. But compared when you have a, you know, a class of only 30 kids, I mean, that's it. I mean, you, it's, you're the biggest one in class, so you're the fat one, you know? And that became a label, became an identity. But you would think if you're the biggest kid, I, literally in ninth grade, I was the biggest kid in high school. There Probably was bigger a, than some teachers, too. Bigger than some teachers. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, there were a couple seniors, I remember being kind of my height and size, but for the most part... I was one of the, if not the biggest kid in the entire school. And so they couldn't attack me physically because they knew, well, he's just bigger, right? Right. That could be scary. Right. They attacked me, my brain, my, my mental status, right? I mean, they, I don't, I can't, you know, let's just say football camps were not fun for me. And so I just, there was like this, like, I went from this generally happy kid in Mobile to this very frustrated and angry kid 
um, by the end of my 10th grade year. And I think that's probably a testament to what schools are currently trying to put into place with the anti-bullying. Yeah. Because... In essence, back, I was bullied. Yeah, yeah. Back in, what, late 80s, early 90s, you didn't hear a lot of the word bullying. Yeah. No. It was almost accepted. And I, and I was so, so afraid you would think, well, why didn't you fight back? And I was, you know, I could not fight. I was not allowed to fight. I was told explicitly by my <laughs> father, if I fight at school, I'm going to have to fight him when I get home. Because he struggled with fighting when he was a kid, so he taught us not to fight. So that what I did was I internalized all of those emotions, all those feelings, and I just bottled them up in the way that I out just let them go. I didn't do a lot of drugs, didn't, you know, wasn't just sleeping around. I didn't do that stuff. I didn't, wasn't a heavy drinker. I mean, I partied here and there, but man, I loved, loved to do bad things. Uh, I would, vandalism was my choice of drug, I guess. When I was in fifth, fifth or sixth grade, still in Mobile, I broke into a neighbor's house and we me and my buddy who lived behind me we drank their beer or their alcohol and had a gun and they were throwing went in the woods and shot it um we were supposed to be watching their home while they were away but they left the door unlocked and that night one of the nights we snuck out of our house at 10 o'clock at night 11 whatever it was and did all that and by the time i got into high school um that anger i would just go do the stupidest things i would um, go into new construction homes and just saw through beams because I thought that was fun. Um, we would steal stuff. Uh, we would steal those construction signs, you know, when you're driving down the road and you see those blinking with the blinking lights. Mm-hmm. Me and a buddy stole like 20 of those one time in the back of his truck and we went into a neighborhood and lined them up in the in a road. That's actually kind of funny. Uh, and then we got up on a hill <laughs> and we would look down and we would watch people drive up to the blinking lights, get out their tr- car, throw their hands up in frustration and turn around. Some people moved them and just kept going. Um, that, that was kind of funny. But yeah, I would I would do these things, and it was a way for me to get out some of that frustration and anger. I just didn't have any self-worth. I did not have any... Nobody told me. No, wasn't a girl. I didn't have any girlfriends in middle school, high school. Um, no one ever looked at me and said, Lal, I think you're attractive. Mm. Besides my parents, and nobody pays attention to that. <laughs> and when you have girls who are, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old, whatever, calling you Fat Lyle, just imagine the psychological damage that does to a teenager. And so I just kind of went further and further into that, you know, vandalism, breaking stuff, stealing stuff. Um, I don't want to out my cousin here, but when we'd go to Kentucky and we would steal cigarettes and stuff from from local stores. And, um, you know, I I got a thrill out of getting away with things. And I became really good at it, became really good at lying, became really good at hiding things. Because there was a thrill involved in somebody catching you in the act of doing something and you bold-faced lying. I mean, I when I got when we broke into that neighbor's house, we got busted because they came home. <laughs> you guys were smart. <laughs> we, right, right. We didn't clean up after ourselves. And it was like obvious somebody had been in their home. So they called the cops and they came over and interviewed me. And I was bold-faced like, nope, there was a guy behind that. I saw him. He went. I came up with a story like, boom, that was from sixth grade insanity bold-faced lie to the cops cops believed me but my buddy when he got home his dad was like you did this didn't you and he was like oh yeah and so they called the cops back and you know i wasn't arrested or anything but i had this ability to lie on the spot and convince people that i wasn't doing the thing whatever what it was and i enjoyed that 
that was my early years. That was my, my early life. And when we moved to Tallahassee, um, I remember driving from Tennessee to Tallahassee being so happy that my parents were finally, probably the best decision my parents ever made was getting us the heck out of Tennessee. I would have, I don't even know what I would have turned into had we stayed in Nashville. So we get to Link, Link, uh, Tallahassee and I went to Lincoln and I just remember walking the, the halls of Lincoln going, this is what school's like? Nobody's calling you names and no one's writing fat law on, 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 on door, you know, on, on the dry wall, uh, dry erase boards. No well, one's... your school in Nashville, how big, how, how many people were in the senior class? 30. And then how many people are in the senior class at Lincoln at the time you were in? Probably a couple hundred. I don't know, six, four, five hundred. I don't know how, I don't know how many people are at Lincoln. A lot. A lot of children. O- way, way more than. A lot of children. So it was funny. I'm, I was, a, when I get, got to Lincoln, my dad thought I was going to play football. And so I got to Lincoln and I tried, went on, I walked on. I was so far behind physically because the school in Nashville was small and I was just bigger than everybody. That's why I was better than everybody. But when I got to Lincoln, these guys were like light years ahead of me. Right. They're looking for college scholarships. Right. I wasn't, Lincoln won the national uh, state championship twice when I was there. And so, or once. Um, And so I was way behind, but I was so far behind mentally. Those guys in Nashville had convinced me that I was worthless, that I couldn't do anything, that I was whatever. And so I didn't believe that I could be anything special when I got to Lincoln. So I just quit. And I remember telling my father, I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing this. And I remember the look on his face. And that was tough. But when I'm there and these guys are benching three, 400 pounds and I'm like at 150, like, and I'm, I'm already a junior. So I'm already, I'm, I'm just not, it's not happening. It's not happening. And so I, when I quit football, um, I kind of decided, my parents said, you know, well, you're going to have to get a job, Right. And so we decided at that point where I went to go work at the Pizza Hut off of Capitol Circle, the one that like the one that you can dine in. And so I got a job making pizzas and bought a bought a Mustang and I would work the night shift and I met a guy there and um, he was closing down the store and that's when I started doing drugs. And we would close down Pizza Hut of all places, doing lots of drugs and drinking a lot of alcohol because we you know, finish out the keg and as we close down the shop. And so I'm 17 years old, you know, getting drunk every night that I worked and going to school, coming home very drunk, very high. Uh, Sometimes I think my parents caught me a few times. And so my life was heading down, 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 even though like I wasn't being abused and stuff, but I found another avenue for sin that I really enjoyed. I was like, oh, well, okay, cool. Let's do this part. Let's do this for a little while. And then enter Agape Life. Mm. Um, I, when I was 18 years, 17, 17 years old, my parents started to uh, go to this, this church in Tallahassee called Agape Life, and they forced me to go. And As I, all good parents do. That, that's right. And I would sit on the row with my, my hat um, uh, pulled, uh, down. pulled down. And we actually met at, at the, uh, the uh, Young Actors Theater, which is kind of ironic. Uh, and I didn't care to be there, but they eventually forced me to go on this youth trip. I don't want to get into details here. Eventually, I went on this youth trip, and I got radically saved. Mm. I'm talking, went from angry, pissed off, just hated the world, didn't want to have anything to do with God, to the dancing man. I went from Fat Lyle to dancing man, literally overnight. 
And so that was as a miraculous conversion than that I've seen. And so it was, I experienced a lot of freedom in that moment. There was a lot of freedom of the pain that I was feeling, the rejection that I was feeling, all the things, the frustration that I had. I was lonely and didn't have very many friends. Um, and I instantly had this family. It was a youth group. And even though they were much younger than me, small little you know, youth group, mostly middle school and freshmen, I still had people that were my friends. And that was a first for me. Uh, that people just cared for me. And eventually I met these guys, Randy and Evan and Joe, and I became, I had this instantaneous, when another youth group joined our group, and like we kind of merged youth groups, I had this instantaneous like, like family of friends that I had never had in my life. And so I experienced in those early first, you know, I was 18 years old, three, four years, just this instant, just, just healing of a lot of that. Um, that's where I met you. We met. That's where we met. That's where we met. You were actually dating my <laughs> best friend. Yeah. Yeah. When we first met. And then you, you know, we, we started dating and we got married um, when I was 22. That's right. And so what was interesting was at 22, I was a little man. I was immature. I was not ready for marriage. I thought I was, right? I thought I was ready for the pressures of marriage and what it meant to be married and and all those things. We had a great relationship. Uh, It wasn't that. It was I quickly, after we got married, within a year, I was falling back into some that sinful stuff. I got attacked, not attacked, attached to these guys that I would wash cars with at GM here in town, GM dealership, and started doing drugs again, started doing drinking again, um, hiding that from April. And develop, I was starting to develop, rekindle some of those skills that I had developed when I was in my mid-teens. And this happened 22, 23 years old. And it got to a point where one night April had to come pick me up from a party because a guy dropped his Xanax and my beer. And I just don't know what happened. I blacked out and then woke up hours later and um, had to call her because I was very wasted. This happened at 22, 23 years old. Um, and so we moved from, from Tallahassee up to Atlanta. And, and from there, I just started gaining a lot of weight. I got really heavy set. I blew up to like 320 pounds at, the, at my heaviest. And I started to develop, and this really started happening when I was in high school. Um, I started to develop multiple versions of, of me. Uh, my mid-20s were a, uh, like most guys, you know, we're learning who we are, we're learning to become men, we're, we're doing all of that. But for me specifically, because I started getting heavy set, um, we were in a good church. Actually, I met some, some, a couple up there in Nash, um, Atlanta that we got really close to. Things were actually going pretty well. But I had developed this second Lyle that were that was still Lyle right this is the thing people talk about is maybe in the early 2000s a lot of sermons were talking about like masks the mask we wear and things. that's right yeah I remember that I don't I see I didn't see me just putting on different masks um I had different literal versions of who I was right I was one way with April I was one way with my friends I was one way with say um 
the guys I worked with, because at that point I was bouncing around from this career to the next, trying to figure out my way. I was working in an Acura dealership, managing a detail shop. Well, you, was, played, you played to your audience. Yeah, most, most certainly. I was a chameleon. Whoever I was around, I would become to fit in because I wanted acceptance. I wanted somebody just to tell me that they, they loved me in, in their own way. Mm-hmm. And so I started, I was smoking a lot. It's my pack a day. I was fat. Uh, I went from, I, at this point, I was fat. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I was 320 pounds smoking a pack a day. For lunch, I'd take two hot dogs from the, the Q, Q-tip. Two hot Q-T. dogs. Q-T, that's right. Um, Q-tip, that's hilarious. Uh, <laughs> um, so I drink, I would eat two hot dogs, a big of one of those liter things of, of Mountain Dew, and a bag of vinegar, salt, salt, salt and vinegar potato chips. And that was my lunch. And I would smoke almost almost up to two packs a day at one point. And I would drink two of those two liter Mountain Dews. And I was just cr- it was insane. Um, and then I would come home and I was a different way with, with you. Yeah. You know, um, the fun part of this was in part of my weight issue was we, you, we'd call and say, Hey, stop by McDonald's and get some food. And I was like, okay, whatever. Cool. And, uh, I remember there's a McDonald's right there, right next to our apartment complex. And I would stop in to the McDonald's and I would get me typically a quarter pounder cheese value meal. You would get the double cheeseburger. And then I would get typically another meal on the side. And what I would do in the mile, maybe a mile, it was, it, it was not that far. Was I would eat the entire second meal that I purchased before we got home. And then I would then eat the other meal with you. And that was part of that hiding who I was. It was that I had developed this keen skill. Also, it was a control issue. And it was also this thing of like, I could, you would ask me, did you smoke today? And I could, I don't know how, maybe you just didn't want to believe it or, or whatever, didn't want to start a fight, whatever. I would convince you that that was just the guys I had been around. Because I worked in a car dealership, in car lots, and, you know, everybody smoked and yeah. mechanics. I do remember one time you you said, do you hear yourself? You sound crazy. Yeah. And I was <laughs> I was convinced, yeah. maybe I'm crazy. Maybe. <laughs> because I am so, so not for smoking. Yeah, yeah. Um, I knew it was, and I knew you didn't like smoking. And it yeah. was a big deal, so I hid it from you. It was a big, it was a big no-no for me, and... I mean, you did work with a lot of people that smoked. Mm-hmm. So um, it made sense. And so, it, yeah, it made sense. You were outside. You were with all these guys. You did, you know, you were doing physical labor, and it was hot, and it's Atlanta, and people are smoking, and yep. it's, you know, if you're around anyone that smokes for a while, you smell. But I, I, whew, I thought you, you <laughs> I had really convinced had convinced me that I was going cuckoo for. And that's, and that's that skill that I had learned at 13, 12, 10, whatever it was, right. to, to do that. I mean, going back when I was 10, never mind, I'm going to go with that story. That's a little, <laughs> that's a little too embarrassing. Uh, Maybe a little shameful over that one. But, yeah, I had developed this skill set of lying straight to people's faces. And this is why it's so hard to even talk about it now because some people may be listening going, well, how do I know you're telling the truth? Right. Because if you're so good at it, how do you? How do I know now? You're not that good. I'm not that good. I'm not <laughs> as good as I used to be. <laughs> and so this is my mid twenty. This was really who we, who I was, and I remember, you know, wanting to change, but just didn't know how to, to, really. I did. I don't. I don't really remember wanting to change. I just remember this is who I was. So we ended up moving 
We had Katie Rose and we moved back to Tallahassee. When Paul talks about in Romans 7, that I get that, right? When Paul talks about two guys or two yous, right? Mm -hmm. The sinful nature and this spiritual man, and they're almost at war with each other. And he does the thing that he doesn't want to do, but he does it anyway. And he cries out at the end, oh, who's going to save me from this wretched body, right? I, when I read that now, I go back and go, man, I get that. I had these two people warring at each other. And eventually, the sinful man won over the spiritual man. I was not strong enough to overcome. The spiritual man wasn't strong enough to overcome the sinful man. And so we moved to Tallahassee and I got a job at ITT Tech. Um, we were living with in a, in a, in a transitional period because I got the job so fast. We moved and then we were living with your parents for a little while. I started uh, playing basketball with um, your father-in-law, David. And My stepdad. So, I'm sorry, father-in-law, <laughs> yeah, stepdad. And he would get me outside in the humid August heat in, in Florida and I was super overweight and he would just, we'd play basketball one-on-one, -on -one, mm -hmm. 21. And he would whip my tail and I couldn't stand it. And I decided I'm not gonna get beat by this 50 year old man no more. So I decided to go for a run one night and I went for another run. And I just started this journey of weight loss. I decided that I was gonna lose weight. Um, and so that was really the, the catalyst for change in my life was the shedding of eventually a hundred pounds. Now, this is this catalyst did not come from a spiritual place. Right. Okay. It was vanity. I wanted, well, I mean, this was also around the time that your dad was having some heart problems. Yep. That's right. Um, you have that's a true. long family history. history yep. my, of... my, 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 um, my grandfather, my dad's dad died when I was very young from a heart attack. Um, uh, my dad did have a heart. I had forgot about that. So I decided that I was just going to lose weight and I put Mountain Dew at the, on the pedestal. I have not had a Mountain Dew since, um, 2010. And I used to drink two of them a day religiously. Um, and I put that on the pedestal and said, that's the thing. That's, that's the thing that calls me to be so fat, you know? Yeah. And so I haven't, and I just said, nope, never having one of those again. If you ever see me drinking a Mountain Dew, you've now seen that I've given up on life. <laughs> that's the that's the sign. Um, no Mountain Dews. No right, right. So I I went on this journey to lose a hundred pounds, and I say it was for vanity reasons. At first, it was healthy. I mean, it was it's you never it's never a bad reason to lose weight when you're extremely overweight. But eventually, it was like with every pound that I sh I shed, it exposed every deep and dark and negative thing about who I was. It was like it brought out all the vanity. My, my, my self-esteem issues became selfishness. And it was like, oh, I started looking good. I started getting compliments. People started telling me, wow, you look good. I mean, I go see my parents and they were shocked when I would lose 30 pounds, 40 pounds, 50, 60. And so you start feeding when you have no self-esteem and no confidence in who you are. You start feeding off of every positive thing somebody says to you and this eventually led when i when i, I hit the 100 pound mark um this led 
to an inappropriate work relationship. I had, I went, I had an emotional affair with the, a woman I worked with that led to a physical affair. I never said that. I mean, I have said that to a lot. A lot of people know, but saying it out loud, it's crazy. Um, yeah, I. It's like now it's out there. Um, it just happened. It it caught me completely off guard. I didn't plan for it. This wasn't something that. I'd ever thought about before. I don't remember going, you know, when we were early on in our marriage, going all, I was happily married. We weren't in a bad place. We had just moved out of our, out with your parents and got our own place. I just was woefully unprepared for the advances of another woman on my, on me. I just was not, not ready for it. It's not an excuse. You know, it's not, you know, I'm not going back and saying, you know, that's why, why is the why is very very hard to come to the why, but the the affair itself was was on and off again for about uh, a couple months, and then there was this period of like me trying to hide it, and I did not want to tell April. Um, I came to my my senses one night and decided that I was going to end it because I just knew what I was doing was wrong. The guilt finally just consumed me, um, and for for almost a year I tried to fix it. I, I mean, just did everything in my power to overcome this thing. I felt like I could, okay, I knew this thing that I had done was wrong, so I'm going to do everything in my power. I'm not going to go back to Jesus. I can do this. I can fix me. I can end this relationship. I can end these feelings. I can end all of this. And I would have, we would, I would have good days, and I would have horrific bad days. The things that, I, the, the things that I've done and said will haunt me to my grave. Um, and I, and I, I, I got to the point where I I was at the end of myself, at the end of my wits, I was going absolutely crazy trying to manage every lie, every detail, every phone, every text, every phone call, every email, every different account that I had created to try to hide everything. I, I had these multiple layers and yeah, I had honed my skills of, creating multiple lives, but it had come to the point where I was I consumed by this thing and I, I was rotten, I was dying, and I was losing my ever-loving mind. I was breaking. And I remember hanging out with a, with a friend and I had to tell somebody. So I met with Michael Mears, a good buddy of mine who would, I was in his wedding and he was in mine. And... Um, he told me, he was, a, he was a pastor in town, he told me, look, man, you're never going to be whole if you don't tell April. And I was like, dude, that's the wrong answer, bro. That ain't happening. You're crazy. There's no way. And he's like, dude, you're, you're never going to be who you are supposed to be if you don't confess. And I said, okay. I don't know why. I had never lived up to anything in my life. I had always found a way to get away with whatever I had been doing. I found a way to lie through it, cheat through it, like on tests and things. Like I figured out a way to overcome every little deficiency in my life. But this was the thing that I could not run away from. And I did not want to get a divorce. I did not want to leave. So I was like, okay, so if this is the thing that's going to heal me or heal our relationship or whatever, 
that I'm going to do it. But then he said the harder thing was, but you have to live with whatever decision April comes to. So you're going to tell the truth no matter what. And I said, whoa, now that's something that's okay. Um, and I remember it was like a Wednesday night, I think. Um, got off the phone with him. And I remember him later when I told him that I did confess. He was like, you did it? He couldn't actually <laughs> believe that I did it. Um, but I, I got home and I, I just told you. And uh, the pain that I knew that I had caused you, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget the screams. Um, and I think, I think those screams were so important because I realized finally that this is not a game. Just because you want to do something and you have the ability to do something and you want it, you were, it, was, it was causing others pain. I, 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 finally, my decisions and my poor, my, my selfishness had affected somebody else. And I remember when that was all over, looking at you and saying, what are you going to do? Mm. And you said, I don't know. <laughs> Those were the scariest words that I ever had heard of. We had, Katie Rose was only about, what, a year, year and something? Half. Almost two. And I loved that baby girl. And I did not want to lose her. I didn't, I didn't want to lose my family. I didn't want to lose it all. And so I had to sit there for, I don't know what it felt like, months. I don't know. I slept on the couch for a long time. <laughs> um, waiting for your answer. Um, if you haven't figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> we, we figured out an we, answer. Yeah, yeah. We, the answer was we were going to work through it. But how does this, how does it happen? How do you go from happily married to this horrific thing? And I still don't know the why. I mean, no, there's no like, I didn't make a decision to do this. I wasn't like, I didn't wake up one day and say, I'm going to go head over heels into this sinful pit. What? Well, you made a decision. Yes, I did. Yes. It wasn't a pre-planned out. Right, right. I did. There were there were moments, I remember there were moments that I could have gotten out. Right. And I chose not to. Right. And so... Or moments you could have confessed because there it was obvious that something was going on. I wasn't hiding it, it as well. It was yeah. not... You were a good manipulator of time and scheduling and things like that. Um but you wasn't that good. I was like, changing. I, there was a time where, like, we, I knew what was happening, but I was unwilling to accept it because I just didn't think you were capable of mm. that, especially given my upbringing and what I had witnessed in my own family, the brokenness. Um, there's no way. There's no way you could have done that. Yeah. I, probably in my brain, I thought I was probably hiding it better than I actually was. But I was changing. I was I was an angry guy, flying off the handle all the time because I was constantly paranoid. I had become extremely paranoid over my phone and, and different things. So yeah, I just think it it came down to I just I mean the why I think I just wanted to I wanted, well, for whatever reason I desired this thing and um, I went head heels. I mean I went head first into it and. 
I think it comes down to yeah. I I just I wanted to, but I, I just wasn't. I was I wasn't as strong as I probably thought I was. Right. I didn't have a better moral compass. I did not have that foundation that I thought that I had. Um, I mean, you would. I would have thought that I was my my faith was grounded in Jesus, but. I mean, to do the things that I did meant something must have been off. Something was 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 missing. And so it wasn't necessarily like a lack of faith. I believed in God. I mean, all through this time, I remember I didn't, I wasn't, I remember praying during this time frame. Like I, there wasn't a lack of faith. I wasn't rejecting my faith. Um it wasn't a matter of not even going to church. And we weren't, yeah, we weren't in church at this time, but a lot of people have affairs in church. It's, 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 it's it happens. So I, I don't know the why. So you said this was the first time in your life you had owned up to mistakes, the coming clean. Yeah. So what do you, how do you think that that like revealed what you thought was your foundation? Because you had a miraculous legit from one end of the spectrum to the other end of the spectrum in your faith mm-hmm. and your salvation, your salvation experience, yeah, someone yeah. call it, but your inability to own up to it. Truly like own yeah, up yeah. to, cause you can't repent for something if you refuse to yeah, own yeah. up to it. Yeah. I mean, I think if it, I think there could have been a way where it, if, if the separation of the, of the relationship could have been had, Right you and I could have somehow survived without me confessing. Maybe that doesn't happen. Maybe it does. But the, the actual change happened when I finally, like you said, like said, I'm done. I, I, like when I say I was going crazy, I was broken. I had nothing left. I was on the ground. I was in the gutter. I was six feet deep. I didn't know I had said so many lies. I had so told myself lies and you lies and everybody lies. I, I, I just didn't have anything left. And so by, by standing up out of that gutter and saying, okay, this is actually the truth and this is what happened, is what actually, again, was the catalyst for the change. And I don't want to say that this event in my life, you know, it's kind of hard to look back on something so horrific and say it was a good thing. But I can't imagine my life today without going through that because I look back and I'm like, I am not that guy anymore. I have come so far from who that guy was. There were moments where, you know, I remember right afterwards, I didn't know a truth from a lie. I didn't know. I knew I loved you, but I was like, okay, so is that true? And I would look physically in a mirror and I would say, something and I would sit there and think is that is that true or is that a lie I I don't know um brokenness is this thing in the bible or brokenness is thing in christianity that we talk about a lot like it's a it's a widely used term um and I don't want to make this sound conceited or anything but I I do if the term is thrown around so much it's like we overuse it Mm-hmm. And people say they're broken, and, I, and I'm, and this is not because I think I'm better than them. I'm not so sure they think they they really are. Right. Like brokenness is that complete coming to the end of who you are, and that you are left with nothing. 
but Jesus. That there's nothing you can do anymore to fix anything more in your life. The only thing that can fix you is the surgeon. Right. And if you perish, you perish. And you per- if you die, yeah. you die. And so that's it. That's the, 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 the zero-sum game is I'm going to tell the truth. I'm going to live for Jesus no matter what. And w- a lot of people think maybe they're broken until they find out they're not because something else happens. And that was kind of how it was with me. Like I thought it was okay, and then something else would hit me and like just knock me on my butt, and I would have to go through that process again. And it was the, it was kind of my, my, my parents had come and visited, and they knew what was going on, had already confessed, and they come in. It was, I remember this pretty heavily. They come into our apartment and they see this bottle of, I think it was tequila or rum. We had bought it to uh, make margaritas. Now, I wasn't, I was not a heavy drinker. No. I didn't just, Not at home. Not at home. I wouldn't come and just drink, drink, drink and be drunk. I, that, no. that really wasn't who I was. But my dad sees that, that bottle and he, he, he thinks that, you know, this is something I've been into and, and I'm sitting on the couch. And he takes this bottle and he throws it in my lap and he says, Okay, are you going to be a man or not? And I remember, forget the alcohol because it wasn't a thing. That challenge, are you going to be a man or not? That challenge was so huge for me because up to that point, I was not a man. I was still a boy living in a man's body. And so all of this, all of this stuff, we started working. We started going through counseling, and, and I didn't really follow the counseling very well. But I, I, I was still going in the through beginning. it. In the beginning. I, I was still working out my feelings and working out my emotions. So kind of like with Paul, with Peter, when he denies Christ three times, and then Christ comes back to him and says, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And he does it three times, and that's like kind of Peter's regeneration. That's his forgiveness. I kind of felt like that during these early stages, and I was just, I kept hearing from God, I, you know, I do love you. Like I, I had, I had to believe God's love for me, right? I had to reaccept. I had to take everything that I knew about Christianity and just push it to the to the side, and I had to just say, okay, I don't know what I really believe because something again would have must have been off something about my foundation. So I had to begin to slowly rebuild my faith on the gospel, the blood of Christ. And it was hard because I had to ask myself some very difficult questions. What is the gospel? I couldn't even define it. So I would meet with friends and Michael Mears was another, he helped me before and he helped me through this, answering questions and talking through what does that mean? What does that look like? Um, for me, I had to admit who I really was. I had the good and the bad. I had to admit that not, you know, I, it, it was, we, we kind of laugh and joke about the lying and the things, you know, I did in my childhood. But I had to admit I was a liar. Mm. I had to admit that. Because if you can't admit the most basic things about who you are and you try to cover them up with more lies, then... Yeah, you, when you are consistently lying, yeah. that makes you a liar. Right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, hard to do that. I had I read every book on the gospel I could find. Um, didn't matter who wrote it. I wanted to read about it. I had to get deep down in my soul. I had to give myself grace because I walked for the first however many years afterwards with just a, such a heavy burden. I mean, I would just be driving down the road and I would just start weeping because I carried it like it was right on my my on my my uh, uh, Shoulder? shoulders. Like I was just. 
it, the hurt was so raw because I had not even forgiven myself. I, I hadn't done it. You had forgiven me, right? We were working through it. God had forgiven me, but I hadn't even given myself grace. So how can I give others grace if I, I haven't even given myself grace? And there's a great book, All is Grace. And it's about a, a, um, a Catholic priest, an ex-Catholic priest who struggled with alcoholism his entire life. Mm-hmm. And to his dying like days, he'd struggle with. He'd go preach at some you know evangelist you know conference, whatever, and then go on a three day bender. And he talks about all his grace. And that book was so incredibly impactful on me because it was like, okay, I have this thing that I'm going, I'm struggle, I struggled with, and and I'm going to have to filter for the rest of my life certain things through the gospel and grace. And it doesn't mean I'm I'm not a believer, right? Like I, gr- grace is much bigger than my sin. And I had to understand that. And I had to finally, not finally, but I had to embrace Second Corinthians 5. When he said, when, when Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. I had to really think through that because I was like, wait a minute. If I'm in Christ and I was at 18, why at 28 did I do that thing? And that brings me back to, you know, we were talking about Romans 7. There's these two things, and Paul talks about it through all his letters. There's these two people waging war in your body, and you have to go to war if you want to overcome these things. And I could not be passive about it. Right. I couldn't just sit back and say, oh, this is just who I am. This is accept me for who I am. Everybody, I'm done now. I'm done like, now. That happened and I'm Man, done. I am constantly, almost annoyingly, trying to identify issues in my life and trying to overcome them because I do not want to return back to that guy because that guy was horrible. But I was still, I'm like, I'm a new creation in Christ, but I still have this thing on me. Like, you know, I still have this propensity to lie and I have to tell myself, nope, tell the truth. You know, I still have a propensity to want to hide things. You know, these things are not 100% dead. They sometimes rear their ugly heads. I mean, Every once in a while, I'll sneak a double um, oatmeal cream pie, you know? And I, and I, funny thing, I get kind of guilty about it, you know? And April, she'll, April's laughing because if you go to my truck right now, there's Snicker bars. There's wrappers. <laughs> Snicker bars. Snack and double, wrappers. Yeah, and double cream, uh, oatmeal cream pie stuff. You know, I, I, I love it, but I, I have to be careful that I'm not hiding. And that's it's not a, it's not a sneak. It's not a sneak. We all know it's there. So through your childhood and this, you know, as you called it, um, consistent inconsistencies, right? And this, um, you know, young, young guy with no self-esteem and the lack of worth Mm -hmm. um, or believing the lack of worth because Mm -hmm. you were, you, you were worth a lot. Your family loved you. Mm -hmm. You did have, you did have some, a couple of friends, um, some of them not, not such, you know whatever, um, through teenage, teenage angst and then coming into a group of believers who loved you and accepted you and then kind of falling out, back out of that um, and then making some very poor decisions. How has God used all of that to get you where you are right now? And what is God doing right now? Well, first off, I would say that I found my true worth in Jesus, that I no longer look to 
people's compliments to satisfy who I am. Now, is it nice to get a compliment here and there? Sure. Do I like it when somebody, you know, yeah, that's always probably going to be part of my personality, but my ultimate self-worth, who I am, my, my, my inner being, am I a worthy person of love? Doesn't come from anybody but one person, and that's Jesus Christ. And if you, if once I had that foundation, then I was, I'm, I'm able to accept other people's loves based upon that. And I don't work for His love anymore. I don't, I don't feel like I have to go to church enough to to gain love from Him. I can't worship enough. I can't pray enough. I can't can't do enough good things to impress Him enough that He'll love me. He loves me because He loves me, in spite of all the things that I've done in my life. And that is by far the biggest thing that we can all, we have to get that across our thick, idiot skulls that Jesus loves us no matter what we've done and no matter what we will do. And so what I've done, what I've done is where, where I am now with Red Hills is, well, we're moving into this new role, this new pastor role thing that I'm still trying to figure out. Um, but we're moving into an outreach thing. And I, I didn't care about that before. But now I'm just like eager to say, okay, right. So we have a good foundation of church. Our, we got our kids plugged in. We know where we're going to be. Um, I feel the calling of pastor on my life. We're moving into that. So the next thing is we're going to start getting out of the, of the four walls of the church. And we're going to start taking the message of the gospel. But not like, we're not like, I mean, call it missions work, I guess. But what are we doing at Red Hills and what is God doing at Red Hills to the city of Tallahassee? Um, that's where currently we are at. Um, but one thing that I've learned and one thing I have a passion for is t- teaching people about the gospel in a way that, look, yeah, it is, is good news for all of us, right? And each person needs to hear it. But once you hear it, what are you going to do with it? And so one thing I'm passionate about is taking that message of the good news and helping people realize it in their own life and then help them walk through it. Because it's the thing I did not have in my earliest years. I didn't know what the gospel was. I just thought the gospel was the story of Jesus. That's all I thought it was, right? That's because of the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke, right? right? I could not contextualize it. I could not personalize it into my own life. And that, that de-linking of the gospel to my salvation, which just sounds so crazy because that's the gospel is the power of salvation, right? But it, I didn't have it. And so my faith was early on at 18 was built on the emotional, spiritual side of faith and not Jesus. So I want to help people get that link in their own lives. And then, and then lastly is hopefully um, one thing that I believe is that this thing that I've been through, all of it, right? This is the, the affair. All that stuff was just one part of who I am and one part of my story. Um, but helping other people through their own struggles. And we've already, you know, you know, I say given the opportunity is probably the wrong wording, but there have been people who've gone through what we went through. That's right. And God has put them in our lives. Mm-hmm. And we have been able, both of us, been able to share what God did in our marriage. I, I, our marriage is amazing. That's right. When we when we when we went through that, we had lived in this crappy little apartment, uh, townhome. We had one kid, mm-hmm. and I had no career, and I was a loser for the most part. <laughs> <laughs> God has blessed me beyond my wildest measures. 
and not just not just financially, not just like you know, by, material materialistically. I just I I am broken by what God has done in my life. And I, and I am so thankful that I can't, it's the first thing I want to say, Lord, thank you for this day. I don't deserve it. I deserve nothing. What I had deserved was for you to walk out that door and take my baby from me and then me be left to survive on my own. But that's not what God had planned for our lives. And so when other people are walking through this, I want them to hear, not, there's a list of things that you could be going through that this could be applied to. It's not just the, the affair stuff, marital like problems. marital problems. God is walking you through this. And there are people who love you and care for you. And if you're going through this, there are people who want to walk you through it in love and in grace. Because I can tell you right now, the one thing I've gotten from any of this is that I am the worst of sinners, and I can hold I, I cannot hold a grudge to no one. You can't tell me something that I'm going to go, well, there have been times when people have told me things that they've done. I'm like, okay, okay. <laughs> but I'm, God's grace is greater than your sin. He's greater than my sin. He's greater than any sin that I could ever commit. And people may argue theologically about that. But God's grace is stronger. And I want to, I, I hope, my prayer is, and I, it's happened in our lives, and I feel God has given us this message, is that, like Second Corinthians 5 says, we're, we are the message of reconciliation. Yeah. Like, that's what our faith is. Our faith is taking people who are broken and sinful and uniting them with a God that loves them. And, and that's what I want. And that's what I want us to do. And that's what I feel like. God, however you want to look at it, Brought me through, took me through, guided me through, however you want to use that. Allowed language. me to Allowed walk me through. Allowed me to walk through, all of that stuff. You know, doesn't matter. Um, I, I feel it was for a purpose. Absolutely. Because the guy that I am today is nowhere close to the guy I was 10 years ago. Not even close. It's mind-boggling when I look back and go, holy cow, what God has done is amazing. Because I couldn't do it. I tried. I tried hard, and I failed miserably. And it was through that failure that God's grace could be even stronger. Mm-hmm.